Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Stepping up preparations for a no deal? In every member state, all 27 of us. It's as much an issue for Dublin Port as it is for Rotterdam Port, I can guarantee you that. But what I do want to make very clear is the fact that we're, the fact that we're preparing and upping our preparations for a no deal scenario. Uh, first of all, it does not mean that we expect that, but we do still expect that there will be a deal. And we're working very hard to achieve that. Uh, and secondly, we will not be making any preparations uh, for um, uh, physical infrastructure, hard border uh, between Northern Ireland and Ireland, and everyone understands it. Okay, thank you very much, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast, where I am joined by Naomi, freshly returned from Brussels, where I believe you spoke to a few interesting characters. Hi, everybody. Yes, among others, I heard from the Irish Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, who you just heard there at the beginning. He was speaking to me and some other journalists as he arrived in Brussels last week for a European Council meeting. And then at another event in the Netherlands, I got to speak to the leader of the UK opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, who told me this. The um, police service in Northern Ireland just said to me quite bluntly, they said, you put any kind of physical presence on the border to denote where that border is, it's going to lead to problems. There has to be an open border. We'll hear more from Mr Corbyn later, so stay tuned. OK, so Naomi, this isn't just any week in European politics. It has now been two years, almost to the date, since the UK's decision to leave the European Union, something that, as you'll know from the podcast listeners, has had huge ramifications for Ireland and continues to have. Right. And finally, it seems possibly the UK may be making some <laughs> concrete decisions. This week, Theresa May, the UK Prime Minister, convened her government in a big country house in the middle of nowhere and pretty much told them that they weren't leaving until they made a decision on Brexit. Now, this is really significant because thus far the government has been famous for not making any decisions. Uh, two years on from the vote, the Conservatives are still struggling to agree among themselves about what Brexit means. Now, Naomi, <laughs> I've got to be honest. I mean, I've actually pretty much lost the thread on this one. Like, the, the Brexit machinations have been complicated at the, at the best of times, and we spend half our time on Twitter tailing up on the latest developments. But in the last few days, I have to admit that I just I don't, don't know what's going on anymore. Tim, I, I think you're definitely not on your own there. Like, it's really, it's both very complicated and very boring. And it's gotten to a level of obscurity to do with trade deals and things like that, which, you know, for good reasons, is usually left to people who professionally work on trade policy, you know. Uh, mm. But now this is all being like played out in national politics, which is, you know, one of the reasons why the referendum was a challenge to begin with. Um, mm. ap- apparently, I have been um, yelling fretfully about Brexit in my sleep. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, the, the whole situation has become really uh, like dense in the last few days. 
Um, and this is why we've, we're making this episode, actually. So we're going to unpick mm. the news a bit and try and lay out what exactly is happening, uh, especially as regards the future of Ireland and the border. OK, right. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, before we jump in, Naomi, I want to make some shout outs to our supporters. Uh, a big wave to Marguerite Solari from Sacco in Maine and Deirdre O'Reilly from Surrey, uh, both of them for supporting the pod. And would also say, like to say a big hi to Christopher Dolan, who became the 500th person to like our Facebook page. Hi. Yeah, our Facebook page has kind of been a bit incognito compared to our Twitter. Um, it's feeling a little <laughs> bit unloved. So if you want to go there, give us a like, give us a review, whatever. Or yeah, on whatever social media platform that you use. We, we appreciate it so much. All right. OK, so let's get on with things. Uh, let's start perhaps with this gathering in Brussels then that you've just returned from. This was the European Council, right? And that's a regular meeting of all the prime ministers in the whole EU. Yeah, exactly. So there's about seven of these a year and they normally focus on big common issues faced by the EU. And I can only guess that Brexit, for the week that's in it, would have been pretty high up that agenda. Now, interestingly, okay, it actually wasn't. It really wasn't the main thing on the agenda. Mm. Uh, So there's a huge disparity in perceptions about the importance of Brexit inside and outside the UK. So in UK media and in UK government, it's like a curse. They've been cursed to talk about this forever. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's all anyone is, is, is talking about, um, certainly in the political bubble. But for other players in the EU, Brexit has really receded to a side issue. And they're just waiting mm. for the UK to make a move. Fascinating. Well, actually, now that you say that, I have noticed that in France. I mean, as far as the public are concerned, um, you know, a lot of people on the street here would assume that the UK has already left the EU and that this is all over. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's very little media appetite for the intricate squabbles of the Tory party or anything. You know, they don't, they don't even know who they are. Yeah. Um, but if, if they're not talking about Brexit uh, at the European Council, then, then what are they talking about mostly? Well, there was much more focus on migration um, and also mm. whether the German Chancellor Angela Merkel was going to see off a challenge from her coalition partner. Um, Brexit was talked about, but it was an aside, like an annoying kind of fringe issue. Um, But I spoke to a few Irish figures who are kind of more occupied with this topic than others because of how much it affects our country. Um, And they're people who are really in tune with the negotiations. So I asked their take on it. So who are we hearing from exactly? Okay, so first I spoke to Dara Murphy, who's an Irish member of parliament in Leo Varadkar's Fine Gael party. And he's also vice president of the European People's Party. Okay, right. So so that means he's part of the uh, an Irish National Party, the ruling party, but also of a pan-European political party. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So the EPP is an overarching centre-right party in which 70 different political parties from different European countries all come together in a bloc in the European mm. Parliament. And Dara was uh, Irish European Affairs Minister at the start of the Brexit negotiations, so he's quite close to what's going on. He told me he struggles to understand why it's taken the UK so long to come up with proposals for Brexit. The Tories have, of course, been struggling to agree among themselves on their actual position in all this, and that makes it very difficult to negotiate with them, he told me. I remember when the Irish government was starting to prepare for uh, what would happen if uh, they were to vote to leave British officials and that saying that, that because they didn't want the, a leak of any preparations, they weren't engaging uh, in looking at what a Brexit might look like. And remarkably, we stand here now literally only a couple of months uh, from when this issue was meant to be wrapped up and going to the European Parliament, that's still in some of the key issues and and, and frankly key issues involving us, still unresolved. We still await conclusive proposals from the UK side. We still remain in, in, in a position where the discussions between both sides of London 
between both camps within the Tory party, frankly, haven't been concluded. And that puts us as an Irish people at risk and frankly makes it very, very hard to see progress being made uh, on the European Union side. That's what I'm hearing. I mean, I'm hearing people saying, OK, now we're planning for no deal. We have to have those contingencies. Um, but doesn't that go against your most treasured objective of avoid avoiding a hard border? Let's be frank. I mean, it's the United Kingdom that's leaving the European Union. It's the United Kingdom that can't decide what type of relationship it wants to have. The European Union clearly you know, wants to have the best possible deal, but we can't undermine the values of the European Union. We can't put a member state like Ireland's economy at risk. But we must protect the three million uh, Europeans who live in the United Kingdom. But in any walk of life, if the, the other side across the table can't make up its mind about what it wants, a negotiation is absolutely impossible. I, I notice from the way people are talking that Brexit is kind of an aside almost, particularly at this council. It's not, it's not a major dilemma for, for Brussels. Is that your impression? Yeah, that's my impression. I think it's, it's a number one issue for Ireland. But I think, you know, given the challenges that for many people are facing with respect to migration, security, many very, very serious uh, economic problems. I think for many, many member states, uh, you would have to say that Brexit uh, isn't even the second or third issue, maybe the fourth or fifth in some, and for some lower than that. But for the European Union and for Jean-Claude Juncker uh, and for Michel Barnier, um, uh, there is an absolutely very strong sense of solidarity with the Irish people and an understanding that for Ireland this is the number one issue. Sometimes the way politics work, and it certainly seems to be the case uh, you know, in, in domestic UK policy, politics, that you know, they really seem willing to walk up to the edge of the cliff. And, and I hope they're not crazy enough to actually jump off it, because the people whose economy will be dramatically impacted by this uh, are, are the people of, of the United Kingdom and that will affect us as their main trading partner and will of course affect the part of the United Kingdom uh, and the part of Ireland, Northern Ireland, depending on your political uh, point of view, will, will be seriously impacted. The simple fact is, is that all evidence that I've ever seen is that the most, the most potentially exposed region uh, is Northern Ireland um, and, and the way to protect it, frankly, uh, is to have the softest possible Brexit. Okay, so to be clear, when Dara talks about the prospect of going off a cliff, he's talking about the so-called no-deal scenario. The attitude in Brussels was a kind of a grim resignation that this was an increasing possibility. All 27 remaining member states have agreed to step up preparations for that. Okay, right, so let's slow down. Um, because this prospect of a no deal has been one of the big bogeymen of the Brexit talks. But what does this actually mean? What is a no deal scenario? So it all started when Theresa May triggered Article 50 on the 29th of, of March 2017. That started a two-year countdown clock to the UK leaving the EU. Okay, so that means that by exactly two years after that date, which comes up to March 29th, 2019, the UK and the EU have to have agreed a deal between themselves and have all the details hammered out by that date, by that deadline. That's right, is it? Exactly. So otherwise, if they don't agree, theoretically, the UK will just fall out of the EU with no agreement on how they'll trade mm. with each other. Um, oh. And the reality is that no one really knows what would happen. 
it would be like a crazy experiment that has never been done before. But just as examples, you know, without agreed trade terms, it might mean that airplanes can't fly between the countries because they don't have common safety agreements anymore. Um, All goods coming in and out of the UK would suddenly have to be treated under World Trade Organization rules the ones coming from the EU anyway, they're a kind of a global default trading rules. But what it would mean is that tariffs would suddenly have to be imposed on stuff coming from the EU. Mm. And all businesses sending those goods across the borders, they wouldn't have any you know, warning or t- time to pre- prepare for this, really. So there wouldn't be a system set up to deal with that. And everyone just expects that it would be in, like, chaotic to sum up. So long queues, log jams, total confusion, and probably quite quickly shortages of things in UK supermarkets. The, the stuff that the UK gets from the EU, like fresh vegetables, medicines, things like that. <sighs> Wow, okay. Right, so this isn't overblown. This isn't like some empty threat. Uh, A no deal could potentially lead to total chaos um, in the UK. I suppose, I mean, like, what people are wondering is, uh, like, why the UK would even want to contemplate that this might happen? Well, no one really understands how they could contemplate it, because it would be so disastrous. Um, but, you know, they, they have been saying no deal is better than a bad deal, remember? It's mm, possible that yeah. A, they haven't really thought it through, or B, they're counting on the EU to cave in to their demands. Okay, right. So they're playing a very dangerous game here, and not for the first time. Jesus, <laughs> I mean, like, the, the Tories really like a good firestorm storm gamble, don't they, you know? <laughs> but, um, right, so what... Strong and stable, what ram- Tim. <laughs> Strong and stable. Uh, what ramifications would a no-deal scenario have for the Irish and the Irish border? Well, after that date in 2019, the Irish border between the Republic and Northern Ireland is going to be the border between the UK and the EU. And so that situation I just described with the tariffs having to be imposed on goods and, and suddenly checks to what's coming in and going out and so on, legally that would have to take place on the border in Ireland too. Okay, right. And famously, of course, there still isn't like even a modicum of a plan about how to do this. Well, to be honest, no one knows how it could possibly be done and everyone says that it shouldn't be done because it would just be such a nightmare. So the Irish government has said it's not even looking into the question of stuff like, for example, where you would have customs checks um, along the Irish border because it just won't countenance it as a possibility. It's not going to start planning for it. Right, okay. And, and listeners, remember, this is a border that goes, you know, quite literally through people's living rooms, through their land, through their farms. It's incredibly impractical to monitor. Um, it has, you know, hundreds of roads crossing it, some of them just tiny, tiny little laneways. Um, and it was impossible even to monitor this border during the Troubles when most of those smaller roads were blocked by the British Army even. Yeah, exactly. And even more, like this this border is is one that a lot of people living nearby just believe shouldn't exist. So dissident Republican paramilitaries have said if there's any kind of visible border erected, they would destroy it and they would also attack the people enforcing it. Okay, right. And of course, um, at the heart of this are the major ramifications of what a hard border could potentially do to the economy of North and South. Um, If you take the city of Derry, for example, which is the fourth biggest city on the island of Ireland, that sits right on the border, just inside Northern Ireland. And that makes it the biggest urban centre, you know, for miles around for places like the entire county of Donegal, which is in the Republic. Mm -hmm. So in places like this you have countless people who are living on one side and working on the other or vice versa and open cross-border trade especially in the agricultural sector is really vital to people's livelihood there Mm -hmm. Uh, erecting checks and and barriers between these two parts of the island is something that we never really thought we'd see again you know but Naomi 
you would think, considering all this and how important it is, that the Irish government, rather than just, you know, not even um, letting it enter enter the discussion, you would think that they might just make a plan B, just in case this happens. Yeah, I mean, if you if you read between the lines, the government can't say, the Irish government can't say that they're planning for border checks. But in the background, they are contingency planning. Like they say, you know, all sectors have contingency plans for all, all possibilities. So mm. I think it's I think they probably are uh, contingency planning for it. But what they don't right. want to be seen to do is solving this problem for the UK because they don't they don't want it to happen. You know, this is this is like and everybody agrees that this shouldn't happen. So, you know, they're refusing to, to they certainly won't admit to any planning. I put the question uh, to Phil Hogan, who's a EU commissioner for agriculture. He's an Irish guy originally from Kilkenny. I asked him what would it mean for a hard border to come up, for example, for farmers on the border? Well, we do understand that Prime Minister May has a very difficult situation with the parliamentary arithmetic and with the divisions in our government about what their strategy should be in terms of uh, leaving the European Union. And uh, the European Union fully understands this politically. But that doesn't mean that we can wait forever in relation to proposals from the UK that will actually meet the objectives that they have set themselves with the European Union, like a frictionless border uh, on the island of Ireland and like frictionless trade with the European Union. So we wait and see if the white paper that is due to be published in the next two weeks will give us more information and new proposals mm. uh, that will break this particular these barriers towards uh, an agreement. I mean, what I'm hearing from the UK side is that the backstop proposal isn't passable for them. It just isn't passable. So what options then are left? Well, they've agreed the backstop arrangement in December and March, so it has already been uh, acknowledged by the British government as policy. Uh, and they just have to get on with the implementation of it. And we're waiting for proposals uh, that the backstop is, is, is effectively what it means, a backstop to other proposals that will meet the same objective that can be brought forward with the United Kingdom. And we're waiting patiently to get them. Yeah. Now, now, of course, the other possibility that we've all been talking about is the prospect of a, of a no deal. That seems more likely than ever. Uh, what would that actually mean um, in, in Cavan and in Monaghan for farmers, the people that, that you represent and look after? Well, it's going to mean that they're, they're going to have to be able to plan uh, through all the various sectors uh, the new relationship in relation to collection of customs and putting in place uh, you know, the arrangements for the collection of those particular customs on behalf of the European Union. We're in a new situation where it will be a European border interfacing with a third country, the United Kingdom. So it's going to be difficult and it's going to be an administrative burden for many, for many companies and a very big inconvenience for the people. And just to finish on, just the mood just now in Brussels regarding how the negotiations are going? Well, the mood is not optimistic uh, in relation to uh, you know, the, the, the possibility of reaching an agreement at the moment. Uh, we remain to be convinced that the United Kingdom are able to get unity amongst themselves in order to be able to remove many of the red lines that they put in place, which uh, has narrowed the options in relation to reaching an agreement. Ah, this sounds so disastrous, Naomi. Okay, um, but hold on. Back in September then, we made an episode just after a so-called backstop solution was agreed, right? And this was supposed to be an agreement that would save Northern Ireland from being affected adversely um, from from Brexit. Whatever happened to that? I mean, that's a legally binding document, right? 
It's not. So it needs. It was a political agreement that needs to be translated into a legal like treaty. Um, oh. So what's called the backstop protocol or the backstop is basically you know sets down principles about about the border in writing. Okay, right. So r- refresh my memory on this. Yeah. So because Ireland, the EU, and everybody basically agrees there should be no hard border on the island of Ireland, the backstop states that. If the, if the UK fails to produce some solution which would rely, allow the border to remain open while, you know, doing the other things that it wants to do, Northern Ireland would keep as many of the same regulations as the EU as necessary to avoid a border. So it would retain much of the current situation that it has. Okay, right. And back in December when this was being bandied about, uh, the hardline Northern Irish Unionist Party, the DUP, kind of went into a bit of a rage about this, right? Yeah, the DUP uh, can't stand for Northern Ireland being treated in a in a way that might differentiate it from Britain. So, um, you know, their whole political position is to keep Northern Ireland an integral part of the UK. So they're hostile to any agreement that might cut it off or distinguish it from the rest of the Union. And there were concerns among Northern Irish politicians uh, that Northern Ireland would become a special case within the UK, keeping the same regulations as the EU and therefore as the Republic, of course. Um, And this would allow the border to remain open, solving that problem. But it would also mean that a new economic border would effectively be created running down the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. So I can certainly see why hardline unionists would get a bit riled up about that. Exactly. So if there's no border on the island, then uh, but the you know the the rest of the UK still diverges from the EU. There has to be a border somewhere. Um, so it's basically to appease the DUP and uh, and and assuage its worries. The UK government agreed that this so-called backstop should essentially apply to the whole UK. So there wouldn't be a border on the island and there wouldn't be a border in the Irish Sea either. And what that means mm. is they can only have the softest of all possible Brexits. That's that's all that can create that as a reality. Okay, so I mean, on the face of it, that's that then. What's the problem? But the problem is that as soon as this was agreed, that figures in Theresa May's cabinet, like, for example, the Brexit minister, David Davis, were like, oh, no, hold, hold on. No, I, I don't mm. think so. We want, <laughs> we want a hard Brexit, you know? There's a, th- and, and kind of backtracking on this agreement and saying, you know, it didn't stand and all that. So that's, that's the reason why it hasn't been translated into a legal text yet, because the UK hasn't come back to the table on that. Um, And everyone began to worry that we might be heading for a no deal instead. Jesus. All right. I mean, like it never fails to astound me how much Northern Ireland is influencing this whole process and how relatively little attention it's getting on the face on the back of that, um, even before the vote. I was uh, listening to BBC Question Time this week and one of the guests said, um, who would have ever guessed before the referendum that Northern Ireland would be so problematic in all this? Mm. And I was like, us! I mean, (laughs) the whole island of Ireland would have guessed it. And they were screaming about it from the rooftops. But, you know, he just ignored us. Well, yeah, it's just the Northern Ireland doesn't feature conceptually very highly in uh, in, in Britain, I suppose, in the, in the public mind. Um, but a lack of foresight about the border has, has been a huge spanner in the works at every stage of this thing. Okay, right. So let's fast forward then to the present now that we've got all that um, summed up. The, the UK ministers have now all been holed up in this big isolated country house together, like some, some like demented Agatha Christie plot. <laughs> and uh, they're all trying to fix this problem before one of them goes into the billiard room and uh, gets a candlestick <laughs> and, and bashes another one over the head. So um, what's, what's come out of all that? All right. So Theresa May was has told all the European leaders that she's going to produce this white paper, white paper, and this would be a you know a new a new solution from the UK about how to solve all of this. Um, but as we mm. know, the cabinet couldn't agree amongst themselves on what should be on that paper. 
So what did she do? She invited them all to Chequers. Okay, so this is Chequers Courthouse. That's um, a massive country man- mansion owned by the Prime Minister. Each UK Prime Minister gets to use it while they're in office. Right? Yeah, and they use it for meetings. So May invited all her ministers there for this intense schedule of talks um, over the last few days. And this time she's playing hardball. So she said, mm. either, either you agree to this proposal, you're on board, or resign right now and you walk home because you're not using your ministerial car. <laughs> that, that'll get results, I'd say. Yeah, nicely done. Well, it was quite practical, like it had practical implications because all the media were waiting outside checkers. So she was like daring mm. her ministers to literally walk out and face the media. Uh, so mm. the, the media knew if they if they saw any, if anyone appeared walking on foot, that would mean they had resigned. So it was, you know, real pressure. Machiavellian uh, move there from May. <laughs> um, d- did anyone walk out? No, they didn't. No one walked out and they produced a written agreement on paper. OK, right. So this is a new agreement. What does this one say? <laughs> so believe it or not, the content isn't almost the most important thing. Like the major advance mm. is that they have something on paper between them that they said they agree on. Um, <laughs> God. God. <laughs> So now they can go back to the EU with these proposals. Now, if you look into the detail of what's on there, it does get a little bit less positive. Okay, right. Why am I not surprised? Okay, so hit me. What does it it propose? Okay, bear with us now, because it's like wading through a marshy bog trying to get through this stuff. Okay, so this is what the UK wants, according to this new paper that's come out. Mm. So number one, harmonisation on goods. So that means, for example, cows in the UK have the same upbringing as cows in the EU or like hoovers or vacuum cleaners have the same safety regulations and, you know, aren't going to burst into flames or whatever. And there's common agreements that cover all that stuff. So it doesn't need to be stopped and checked at the border. It also says if there's something that would need to check at the border anyway, it's not clear what that is, um, Mm. then, okay, it's allowed to have different rules in its manufacturing in the UK. Right. So, okay, number two. So number two, Parliament can decide to have different rules on trade if it wants. Now, Mm. I don't see how the EU is going to agree to that one because it basically means Parliament could just change its mind on anything that I've just said um, on Ah, like day two after Brexit. But anyway, we'll move on. Um, number three is the services industry and it says on this there will be no harmonisation so the UK can do what it wants with banks and insurance and telecoms and non-physical businesses like that. And why, why would this be such an important um, uh, point? Well the whole point of Brexit is the UK wants to have freedom to make its own rules about everything which is okay that's fine but the reality of that is it makes trade expensive uh, with your neighbours and it's complicated and difficult at, at borders if you have different rules. Like, say, say the UK has cheap hoovers that be made from materials that go on fire, like every one in a hundred times they're used or something. Or, or their chicken can be washed with chlorine before it's given to humans to eat, which is the case in the US. Um, or, or, you know, whatever. The EU wants to protect its consumers and it has very strict rules that all the countries within it share. So they can freely trade all this stuff between each other without the needs for checks. That, that's the whole point of it. Uh-huh. Um, so right. here the, the UK is saying, oh, fine, we see it's too complicated uh, for us to have different rules on goods because of the whole border thing. So fine, whatever. But our banks and our insurance companies and our telecoms, they can do what they want because, you know, borders don't matter to them. But I will say again that it's doubtful the EU is going to sign up to that. But I'll, I'll explain mm. why in a bit. But anyway, moving on. OK, right. So this is not simple stuff. OK, yeah. um, number four. So number four is no freedom for people to move between the UK and the EU at will, like there is now. Mm. Um, so, but there will be some new agreement to allow people to move for work and study. So this is a really big one, uh, because one of the main reasons cited for the Brexit vote was a fear of mass migration to the UK, right? 
Yeah, migration worries really fueled the vote, even though the issue was a bit confused because um, the actual issue was migration from outside the EU and not inside it. Um, But the UK government does feel it has to come back with some kind of migration agreement for stricter controls than before, or else it's it's been for nothing. Okay, I see. The problem is, the way the EU works is that if you sign up for one freedom, like freedom of goods, which they want, Mm. you sign up for all, all four. So freedom of services, freedom of money to move around, and freedom of the movement of people. So this idea could be problematic. Okay, all right. And you, of course, you can't just sign up for like two out of those because then you'd be, you know, kind of subverting the whole membership. Yeah, I mean, the, the EU is countries which agree to these four things. So right. you can be in that club or you can be out of it. But there's no reason okay. why they should just to be nice to the UK say, well, you can have two. I mean, it would just kind of destroy the what the EU is. Okay, so moving on then. Um, what about trade? So yeah, the, the, it says in this in this agreement that the UK can have its own trade policy. A trade, trade policy. Po- yeah, policy to me sounds like a, a real fudgy word. Like to be honest, the UK can already have its own trade policy. Like it can o- or already try and get you know China to buy more of its meat or whatever. Uh, like mm. Ireland does that at the moment, but that isn't the issue. the The issue is trade deals. So, um, you know, the most hardcore Brexiteers want the UK to be able to strike its own trade deals. Currently, the EU does that as a whole. And that just means hard borders. Because if you you have agreed, for example, with the US that you can buy its chicken that's been washed in chlorine or whatever, um, then the EU won't want that chicken to come into the EU. Hmm. So you then Mm -hmm. have to have checks for it at the borders. Right. Uh, So if you're striking your own trade deals, then... It's hard borders. So, you know, trade policy, having your own trade policy seems like it just skirts around that actual issue. It's a, it sounds like a fudgy word to me. And then uh, anything else? Well, uh, yeah, they want the European Court of Justice not to have jurisdiction over the UK. OK, all right. So I'm, I'm presuming that this isn't set out like in one, two, three, four, five and six. No, it's like a it's a document of about three pages where this is described in, in paragraphs. I'm really summing up and there's other stuff in there as well. OK, it's still quite a set of demands even uh, within that. Um, how do you think the EU is going to react to this? It's not going to accept big parts of this proposal. Like the EU is, mm. isn't going to bluntly reject it, I don't think, because it doesn't want to embarrass Theresa May. It wants to encourage her um, and it wants oh, to help her to keep her government together. Um, <sighs> but do, do you remember that one phrase that the EU has been repeating since literally the first day? <laughs> no cherry picking. Yeah, exactly. This is cherry picking. Oh, these metaphors, cherries, cliffs, red lines. It's it's all quite, quite a picture that's being painted. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say that Ireland will probably be ha- quite happy with this document, one that it exists, mm-hmm. and, and secondly, that it's it's clearly edging around the border issue. All of its conclusions accept that the state of the border is a decisive consideration um, on what Brexit should look like, but right. the implications of that are still not resolved. Okay, so, I mean, really, we're back to square one before December. Where does the border go? Um, Ireland, I, I'm presuming, still won't accept it going through the island of Ireland. Never. Um, so, is it going to go down the Irish Sea, after all? Nobody knows yet. Um, but if the UK wants to have a hard Brexit and do its own, own trade deals and stuff, that that's an option that would allow that. Um, when, when I was in Brussels, I got the sense that the EU still believes that a special circumstances that would just apply to Northern Ireland and not the rest of the UK are still a possibility. Um, mm. OK, they're, they're like, yeah, the, the DUP might not like them, but the DUP are the smallest fish in, in the pond here. 
Uh, and also the actual public of Northern Ireland voted majority to remain and prefers an Irish sea border border to a land border, according to recent okay. polling. So the EU behind the scenes, I think, is still thinking the backstop for Northern Ireland is a possibility because ultimately it just kind of makes sense and solves a lot of issues. Um, like it would free Britain to do what it wants um, with Brexit. Right, and of course it would keep those hard Brexiteers happy as well at the same time. If they can swallow spe- special circumstances for Northern Ireland. And in their mm. heart of hearts, they might, you know, like the polling since the vote has shown that Brexit supporters see Brexit as more important than keeping the UK together. Uh, so what's next in all this? What's the next step? Next step is Theresa May is going to present these proposals to the EU in a white paper uh, and then they're going to examine them. Um, and then uh, they're going to have to work out the differences. So Theresa May and the EU, I think both see this as a starting bid, like, you know, a starting point. And Mm. there has to be changes between this proposal and something that they can actually agree on. Uh, Some significant changes, uh, in my view. So the big question is, how can Theresa May keep her bickering ministers on board (laughs) as, as you know, those changes are made? What what is the deal, like, with these bickering ministers? What do they want? Um, (laughs) And and why aren't they supporting Theresa May? You would think, like, when being faced with a no-deal scenario, this would be a moment when everyone, especially everyone in the same political party, would just try and work together so that, you know, the country doesn't fall into a kind of near-apocalypse scenario. I think this is something the whole, you know, everyone who's observing this process is marvelling at those those men in the cabinet and how lightly they seem to treat the disaster that they could inflict upon their their own country. Um, So May's cabinet is basically made up of these guys who see themselves as prime ministers in waiting. And they're just waiting for the opportunity to make a political stand over something um, and Mm. kind of step into the leadership role themselves. Uh, So it's, Mm. it's all about what they think is best for their personal careers. Oh my God, all right. So, uh, and in the meantime, Rome burns. Mm. Uh, But uh, this considered then, could there be another UK election possibly in the near future? It's not out of the question. I mean, if the whole thing falls apart, it's it's a fragile coalition. It relies on the DUP and they don't have much of a majority anyway. So, you know, Tory rebels could sink it. Uh, So there are two stark possible consequences here that, you know, should force the UK government to agree and get this Brexit deal over the line, one being no deal and the other one an election, which, of course, they may not win. And, of course, uh, elections are famously unpredictable, especially in recent times. Um, So this could mean serious change in the whole trajectory of Brexit then. We really don't know what it would mean, because in order to... The the Article 50 period could be extended. So that deadline of March 2019, that could be extended, but only if all of the remaining EU st- states agree that. And that just takes a mm. lot of time. You know, it takes, I think it might need to go through Parliament for some of them. Um, it would be really difficult to do that at the last minute. Um, and But of course, th- there's one man who will be only delighted to fight an election, and that's Jeremy Corbyn. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. So the leader of the UK opposition Labour Party, uh, Corbyn was strongly opposed from people from within his own party for being too left-wing, uh, let alone the Conservative Party. So, you know... Mm. The prospect of him being prime minister is, uh, you know, sort of spooky for for the hardline Brexiteers. But in the last election, his party won just 2.4 percentage points less than the Conservatives. And current opinion polls have them on a similar level. 
Okay, all right. So, so, so Corbyn's Labour is really hot on the heels of the Conservatives. They are uh, indeed, uh, yeah. They are indeed. And mm. they would welcome an election. So I met the man himself, Jeremy Corbyn, when he visited the Netherlands recently for an event with the Dutch Labour Party. And I asked him how it felt to have been transformed from this out-of-favour MP who was on the left-wing fringe of his own party to leading it and being a candidate for the next Prime Minister. Corbyn is well known for having supported Irish unity back in the day and very controversially in the UK for having talks with Sinn Féin during the Troubles when they were seen as the political wing of the IRA. Right, sure. And of course, famously, Corbyn was also active in the campaigns for justice for Bloody Sunday, for the wrongfully imprisoned Birmingham Six and Guildford Four, who uh, were a group of people who were falsely convicted for IRA bombings in the 1970s. And back then, of course, being seen to support Irish nationalists was a deeply unpopular position to take in the UK while while um, uh, while the, the troubles raged. Mm. Uh, but Corbyn, of course, was later vindicated with those uh, when those convictions were quashed. Uh, do you think his past attitudes to Irish nationalism and unity have any bearing on the approach he's taking to this question wherein the the border is so central? Yeah, um, hmm, it's a really good question. Um, I tried to figure out what exactly Labour's Brexit policy is, and it's like vaguely softer than the Conservatives, Mm. but it was difficult for me to wrap my head around it exactly. They want a customs union with the EU, which would solve a lot of problems, but it wasn't clear if that's the same as being in the customs union. Uh, so it's yeah, it's it's just another quagmire to be honest. Um, sure. But but Jeremy Corbyn is is someone who we can say Sinn Fein basically like, and the DUP are basically nervous of. So as we'll yeah. hear from him. He's clear that it's completely up to the people of Northern Ireland to decide their constitutional status. He's very far from you know calling for Irish unity these days. But he would be unlike any British Prime Minister that has come before, and that's for sure. I suppose it's very understandable that the DUP might be nervous of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, The prospect of Irish unity has suddenly come to loom large again in the wake of the Brexit vote, as we've seen in previous podcasts. Uh, Certainly for some people in Northern Ireland who want to remain in the EU, this is one potential way out of Brexit. Yeah, and this is an ongoing issue. Like Attitudes to the idea of a border poll where the people of Northern Ireland could vote uh, for unity with the Republic have changed really dramatically in the last two years. And it's clear that Brexit is having a huge role in that. And we'll look at that again on the pod soon. Um, But for now, let's hear from Jeremy Corbyn about his approach to the Irish issue and his thoughts on the border, which he recently visited himself. Uh, We challenged for the leadership of the party in 2015 because uh, I felt that... uh, Austerity was doing enormous damage to the hopes and fortunes of the youngest people in our society and leaving many elderly people isolated and alone. And we had to put forward a much clearer economic alternative of ending austerity and investing in the future. And we challenged for the leadership of the party. It was very difficult to get on the ballot paper, but we did and we won. Yeah, As um, an Irish person, I'm quite interested in... Um, your engagement with Irish affairs going back decades. I mean, you were talking to Sinn Féin at a time when I think they were banned from the airwaves. What was that period like? I represent uh, Islington North in Parliament. It's an area where Irish people have lived ever since it was built. It was built as mainly in the 1890s and it's always been a hugely Irish area. When I first came there, and indeed still, you can buy all the Irish local papers at Archway Tube Station, which is nice. It's nice to walk into a tube station and see the Longford Leader on sale. And um, the 
horrors of what was happening in Northern Ireland, the events at Bloody Sunday had a big effect on me. And uh, I marched with many others to protest about Bloody Sunday. And I, I marched and demonstrated against the Prevention of Terrorism Act because of what it was doing in criminalizing young people in my community. And I always said the way forward has to be a political dialogue. This war is never going to have a military, military outcome. There has to be talks. And so, yes, I talked to Sinn Féin and I met Sinn Féin. I was heavily criticized for so doing. I also took up the case of the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six, uh, innocent people who were caught up in some horrific events. The Birmingham pub bombing was appalling. The Guildford pub bombing was utterly appalling. It was a taking of innocent life. Uh, but those who were accused of it didn't do it. They were wrongly imprisoned and the campaign for the release of the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six was something I took part in. I got a lot of abuse for it at the time, but I was very proud when I stood outside the Old Bailey and they walked out free. If you became Prime Minister, would you support the opening of the archives to examine that period and collusion and even prosecution of soldiers? It has to be an opening up of all of, all of the um, uh, all of the archives on the period, just as the same way uh, as a government. I want to see an opening up of the archives on Orgreave and the behaviour of the police during the miners' strike, as well as the blacklisting of building workers following the Shrewsbury building workers' uh, dispute. Do you see them as part of the same culture? There was a culture of secrecy and the work of the um, families, the Hillsborough families, in first of all getting an inquest, getting an openness and now getting um, a new legal process to bring about justice there is very important. I want to lead a government that uh, opens the books on the past. And indeed the Savile Inquiry into Bloody Sunday was very long and very expensive, but it did. I think, have the outcome it should have had. And now bringing it up to the present, you were in Straban lately, I understand. Um, how are you going to protect the border and keep it open? Well, there has to be an agreement between Britain and the European Union on customs and trade that makes sure there is no hard border in Northern Ireland. The um, police service in Northern Ireland just said to me quite bluntly, they said, you put any kind of physical presence on the border to denote where that border is, it's going to lead to problems. There has to be an open border. And Straban, the border is a bridge over a river, a very nice bridge over a very nice river in a very nice place. And uh, when you go across it, it's not obvious there's a border of any sort. Would you support the holding of a, a referendum on Irish unity? That's a matter for uh, the people to decide, and it's a matter that is part of the Good Friday Agreement. It's not up to me to decide whether a referendum is held. That's a matter to be decided between uh, those people that contributed to the Good Friday Agreement. I think it's the Secretary of State who can call it. Would you, I mean, how, what would your policy... I would not be the Secretary of State. I, hopefully I'll be the Prime Minister. The Secretary of State can only call it within the terms of the Good Friday Agreement if it's requested and there is support for it. Well, thank you for talking to us, Mr. Corbyn. Uh, it looks like a lot can happen before March 29th, 2019. So stay tuned to the podcast, everyone. And thank you, Naomi, for uh, for clearing up 
what this this whole mess and uh, enlightening us a little bit about what's going on right now. Jeez, I mean, I I hope I helped. It's a bit, it's total tangle, <laughs> you know. It's really complicated stuff. But um, on that note, it's, it's all we have time for today. Do remember to share our podcast with your friends and your network if you liked it. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, as those subscriber levels are massively important. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at at Passport Irish. We're also on our famously unloved Facebook page too, <laughs> so go over and give that there a like. Um, and if you like what we do, do consider supporting us on Patreon. If you sign up there, you can get access to a whole exclusive extra series, Half Pints, for less than a euro a month, which is, you know, you can't even get a cup of tea for that these days, Naomi. <laughs> yeah, or you could write us a lovely review on whatever platform you use to access the podcast so other people can find us. Thanks so much for listening. Slán.